The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Are you worried about the impending labor shortage of high-quality employees? Well, you're not the only one. To uh, discuss that with us is Lisa Piquel from Chicago. Lisa, why don't you uh, go ahead and start by introducing yourself, and and we'll, we'll jump into this. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Lisa Piquel, and uh, I'm the president of Orrin Piquel Building Group. Uh, we're a luxury custom home builder here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, we design and build custom homes uh, throughout Chicago, but also in uh, southern Wisconsin and Harbor Country, Michigan. Is, awesome. Well. How, how long How long have you guys been building custom homes? Uh, my father started the company uh, um, over 40 years ago. Um, I've been involved uh, since I was a teenager, so uh, over two decades ago. How's that? <laughs> Actually, it, it looks like it might be less. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many how many homes is that? Would you say in uh, in forty years? Uh, in forty years, uh, uh, I would say if you include remodeling and custom homes, uh, we're we're talking in the thousands, um, probably in the couple hundreds uh, in just new home new home construction. Great. So, are you guys uh, developers or are you uh, contract builders? Uh, we're not we're not really developers. Um, our business model is really on the custom side. Um, so yeah. if you think about kind of ownership being nine tenths of the law, we really work for our customers. Um, I think uh, one of the the biggest differences between a developer and what we do is uh, we can get fired at any time, right? Uh, we don't own the land that the house sits on. Um, where a developer can say, you know, this isn't going very well. I'm, you know, maybe we should back out of this deal, and I'm going to sell this house to someone else. Uh, you know, we we work for our our customers, making us very custom. Okay, so uh, so you guys have been building homes. Uh, first of all, how's the real estate market? Are you affected by the real estate market or independent of that? Uh, absolutely affected. Um, you know, just a, a fast history on our business through the recession. Uh, you know, we went from about sixty million in revenue uh, and one hundred and fifty employees down to a low of around twelve million in revenue and uh, under twenty employees. Um, currently, we're doing about twenty million in revenue with around thirty employees. So definitely growing back out of that recession, um, but certainly not immune to it, uh, even at well, the high end. So let's let's talk about how how did you guys reorganize uh, from sixty down to twelve? I mean, that, that's, that's an 80% cut in your business. So how did you cut your employees, reorganize your staff? I mean, how did you stay profitable if you, if you even are? I mean, I imagine you're doing okay. We but weren't always profitable during that time, to be completely absolutely. honest. So how, um, how did you guys make the decisions and how did you make that happen as a, as a small uh, business? Really, I mean, it's, you know, that's tough. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, as a small business, and I, I know there's a lot of people out there that went that went through this, um, probably you, with, with hindsight, and if you were to ask any good solid consultant, they would say that we did it too emotionally and did it too slow. Um, you know, we were definitely uh, kind of warned um, by, by outside consultants and even, you know, just looking at the market uh, that we were going to see dramatic changes within our industry as early as 2006. And, you know, I think... Um, is anyone that, that works in a small business and really cares for their employees, you know, you hold out as long as you possibly can, right, to to make those cuts and to make those changes. Um, yeah. Everything from furloughing, uh, holiday pay, to administrative staff working um, at 30 hours a week rather than 40, to layoffs, to attrition. Um, so it, it was strategic, but at the same time, I think hopeful in that uh, we would be able to make it through uh, the recession uh, and maintain our key staff and employees and knowledge base uh, so that we could rebuild when the, the timing was right. You know, to me, the uh, the key word in all of that is the word hopeful. Uh, I, I think one of the things about entrepreneurs in general is that we are hopeful. Uh, it's just it's just part of what we do. Uh, we think we can sell our way out of the hole all the time. Um, I mean, you know, when you were in the midst of that situation, and, and listen, 2006, it's very easy for somebody to be a Monday night quarterback and tell you, uh, you should have started laying people off in 2005 right. and six because the truth is it didn't really crash till 07, 08. Right. So easy to say, uh, you know, and, and you're talking about your family, your relationships, your livelihood and all your things. And, and everybody else doesn't have those kinds of uh, attachments. But, uh, you know, when you, when you really think about uh, the decisions that had to be made, how did you go about making those decisions? I mean, how did you separate being hopeful from being realistic and, and kind of put those things in balance? What happened? Yeah, I think so. It was essentially on a, I would say, roughly a quarterly basis. You know, our, our HR administrative needs um, were kind of analyzed. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting about our particular business and our sales cycle is that when we uh, take a deposit, let's say on a new home or on a remodel, um, that's it's a design deposit. And because we're design build, the majority of our revenue doesn't hit for another four to nine months, let's say, right? So because you have to design, bid, go in for permit, et cetera. So the, the real revenue stream, i.e. where we make the bulk of our money, of 98% of our money, we have anywhere between a four and nine month window of what that staffing and resourcing looks like. So we're almost like our own leading indicator to kind of just overly simplify it. Um, good, so yeah. As you're going into those uh, situations, right, and you're looking at your sales deposits and you're they're going down and you're going down and we were able to kind of adjust preemptively to where the, the rubber really hits the road, i.e. the construction of, of the homes. Um, I think what was more difficult than we expected was our fallout ratios, i.e. someone gives you a deposit and then they decide not to move forward, right? There's always some amount of fallout for whatever reason. Um, you know, the family decides not to build, someone gets sick, uh, you know, the, gets a job out of state, whatever the reason being. Um, for the most part, by the time people have decided to design their home, they've also pr pretty much committed to the construction of that home as well. Um, what really hit us during that time period that I don't think we were anticipating, um, and again, with, with some hindsight, those fallout ratios went um, from relatively small, let's say 5 to 10%, to the 30 and 40%. So work that we were counting on um, in regard to that construction cycle, that, that revenue stream, not only was the work not coming in, but it was falling out in, in, at a higher rate than, than we anticipated. Um, no, I, 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 I being love, the higher the market, we would be more immune to that, and, and we weren't. I love the concept of having your own leading indicator inside your own business. I mean, and I would imagine, right. <laughs> uh, and, and I would actually challenge other business owners to come up with their own leading indicators because they probably have them. There are probably things that 
you can look at that happened now that are predictors of what's going to happen in six to 12 months. And that is uh, very smooth that you guys have such an indicator. So, so typically five or 10% is normal. So that's in other words, somebody says, do the design work and then they decide not to move forward and do the construction. Uh, and that could also be because they, they change their mind, they move, work with somebody else, or they, they move, you said a whole bunch of different things that could be possible, uh, but that it went to 30 or 40%. And I imagine a lot of that had to do with uh, not having access to the capital that they needed because the banks were pulling all the uh, credit lines, all those HELOCs, the home improvement Absolutely. credit lines, uh, were all getting pulled and people probably lost access to the money that they needed to pay you to do the work. Is that probably right? Yes, and, and some of our, our clients pay cash. I mean, so this could be either the access to, to lending or it could be just access to their own their own money, you know, during the market downturn. All of a sudden, yeah. you thought you were worth X and now you're worth Y. Is it responsible, to, you know, to be building a, a multi-million dollar home right now? And the answer was no. Well, you know, uh, another thing is that real estate is really a leading indicator in terms of confidence. You know, if people are buying real estate, then they're confident they have the ability to make the payments for a long period of time. If they don't have the confidence to make their payments, then they're probably uh, not making real estate decisions. So in general, real estate is a very good barometer <clears throat> for certain kinds of things. So uh, this is very smooth. So, so you let a, over time, you had to let a lot of people go. You had to make a lot of hard decisions. And these are people that were loyal to you for a long time and, uh, uh, you know, did you guys blame yourselves that maybe you weren't selling hard enough or what, what did you think the problem was when you were in the middle of the tornado? What did you think was going on? Yeah. I mean, of course you, there's a certain amount of, you know, I, I think it would be irresponsible to not have some kind of level of self like introspection, right. in what's going on. Um, but at the same time, being very active within our industry, whether through the home builders association, you know, and seeing what was going on with some of our colleagues. Um, and, and you talk about the financial implications to some of these deals, right? I mean, we're talking about an end user as the lender, right? That's, that's where the money is coming from, either from their own personal savings or, or from a bank. Um, we, I had friends and colleagues that were more the production side of things, right? Where you would, you're talking about significant loans um, out uh, to, to do large, large scale developments. And those loans were being called uh, really without much warning, uh, even if you weren't paying your interest. I mean, you were making your payments. Right. That's you, know, right. You, were, you were going to, to be optimistic and sell right. your way out. And the bank said, thanks, but no thanks. We want our money now or, or this, this yeah. deal is done. Um, this, wasn't, uh, this wasn't like a punishment because you were being bad. This was uh, third this parties were just making other arrangements. They had, they had uh, the banking system had a terrible problem and, and the fallout was terrible. And real estate's one of the big places because it's so, uh, you know, funding dependent. The way that uh, the way that our system is all set up. So, uh, so walk us through. Uh, you had to let some people go. You had to shrink, uh, and, and I imagine. So you said quarter by quarter. So you're peeling it back a little, a little, a little, a little. Right. Um, how did that happen for you guys? Like, like what kinds of steps did you take, and how did you think through that process? Yeah, um, you know, so the, the first and, you know, easiest steps, one is attrition, right? So I think that there was a, a handful of people that very smart, very talented individuals um, that had the opportunity because of their skill sets, let's say it was finance, accounting, legal, et cetera, um, left the business, right? And said, you know what, we, we love what we, we love working here, you know, but you can't afford us and we're going to go find something else. So that was incredibly helpful, right? And that we still were able to have solid relationships and those people were able to land on their feet and just in, in different market sectors. Um, two, uh, across the board pay cuts, um, you know, so the, basically the, the higher your paycheck was, the higher the percentage of, of those cuts and, and how you were impacted. So, you know, if you're a, a VP, um, as, a, as a percentage, you're, you are impacted greater than an administrative assistant. 
um, too. You know, we pulled in our administrative staff and said, listen, we can let go of one or two of you or you can all go to 30 hours. What do you want to do? Right. And collectively, the team said, you know, we'll all go to 30 hours and we'll go get secondary jobs to, to augment that that income. Yeah. Um, we furloughed pay uh, for holiday uh, pay seasons. And unfortunately, we we had to make decisions on, on who to let go um, in, in regard to, to layoffs. Um, you know, we paid as much severance as we could. Um and tried to be as fair to those those people that were let go as, as we as we could, knowing that that it would be very difficult to find another position within our industry, just given uh, yeah. what was what was going on. Um, I think what that's left us now, though, which is kind of scary, is that you know I'm I'm in my late my late thirties, and um, you know to half joking, like I'm a bit of a unicorn. I mean, like the the people that are now my age um, were the those younger people that were very easily kind of let go um, during during our time period. Um, either uh, kids weren't graduating college and entering the industry or those kind of younger first in employees were some of the first to let go, right? They didn't have the knowledge base that some of your older staff did. Um, and today, you know, if you wanna find somebody with let's say 10 to 15 years of experience, it's really hard. And if you do find them, uh, one, they're probably fairly happy in their position, and two, they're going to be paid very well um, because they're good, right? They they made it through those those cuts. Yeah. You know, the other dynamics now, of course, is that you know that uh, guys, my my dad's age, right? The founder of our company, you know, he's in his mid sixties now, and he's looking to retire, right? So the the, the talent pool that was held on to during that time period, right, in the mid two thousands, is now getting to a point where they're ready to to leave the industry for for retirement uh, reasons. Um, we don't have a solid backlog of kind of that next generation to backfill. We also don't have um, necessarily a solid population of, um, let's say uh, folks in their, their late 20s and early 30s because they never entered the industry because there was no jobs when you were when you were graduating college. So, so those people, ne they never got trained in, so there aren't any 10-year uh, people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and what's even crazier is that now, you know, we, we recognize that this is an issue. We're trying to establish relationships with uh, high schools and things like that, right? So creating alternatives to a college-bound program for carpentry, um, you know, kind of labor-type uh, type positions. And one of the things that the guidance counselors and the teachers are telling us is that, you know, some of the parents, right, of your of your 16 to 18-year-olds right now, those are the same people that were laid off in 2006. Now, would that parent want to introduce their student or their, their their child to being an electrician or to being a plumber or to being a concrete or a mason? And yeah. the answer is no, right? Because they they were dinged so badly, you know, 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that, you know, they don't feel that that's a, a viable or, or low risk alternative um, for that next generation that's about to enter the workforce. You know, that that's, that's a really, that's a great question. You know, I mean, uh, but is the problem really about being an electrician? Or is the problem really about living hand to mouth and not, you know, not setting aside resources and maybe living over your means and maybe uh, Americans are not the best consumers. Maybe we're not good savers, you know, I mean, so uh, listen, this country needs uh, more than college graduates. We need uh, people with vocational skills, excellent technical skills, uh, not just in computers, but we need people that can build homes people that can uh, work with lumber, that can uh, do electricity. Uh, I mean, these are, uh, these are, these are not uh, exactly basic services. So we need those people and they need to be paid well for the good work that they do. Uh, but maybe we need to teach people how to be better consumers and better savers and better planners. 
and maybe they need more financial literacy so they understand more about how to take care of themselves better. Uh, you know, and listen, this is me. I mean, I just think that the employment system in the United States, uh, we just take care of people too much and we need to say, listen, we'll be partners with you. We'll take care of you a little, but you got to take care of yourself a little too. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's an unfortunate uh, thing that you point out that parents are saying, don't be an electrician because being an electrician could get you fired, you know, mm-hmm. but that's, that's a bummer. One other thing that you said that I think was great. And that is that a lot of the Intel that you got came from uh, your networking and associations and with other people who are in your same industry. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people, they become very insular. They, they don't go to association meetings. They don't participate uh, in their communities, uh, whether they're, whether it's a local community or, or a national community of, of people who are in their industry. Uh, it's very important to go to those functions for exactly the reason that you just said, which is uh, you learned a lot about, uh, you know, kind of the roadmap that you need to take from talking to other people who are having the exact same business experience you guys were. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it's uh, what, so what associations, where do you, where do you guys belong? Where do you network? What do you do? Yeah. Um, so during that time period, the Home Builders Association of Greater Chicago was a, a great resource for us. I mean, we're still, we're still members there. There aren't as many members today as there were, um, as there were back then. Um, I also, you know, and, and this is my, my dad saying this or, or Oren, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, when you're, when you're doing a good job for your company and you're being active and involved in a, in a trade association like that, not only are you making your, your own company better, but you're raising, you're raising all the water in the harbor. Right. Yeah. I mean, what are we doing as an industry to make sure that we're providing the best products, the best services, you know, so that we're all um, getting better, right, and providing better services, better homes, right, for for everyone that that's out there. Um, and I think that um, you know, not only can you gain invaluable insight, you're absolutely correct, um, but I think as an industry, we are stronger. And for the most part, you know, there, there's lots of work out there, right? And um, of course, we're all competing, and we all want to get that that next big job. But the bottom line is, you know, especially in our industry you know, there's, there's a right match for a lot of different people, right? There's a lot of people that we're not a good match for in regard to building homes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person that they do match with to build their home or to remodel their house sure. isn't a good contractor. Right? They you know, that's, right. We just have different, different services, different needs, different. Hey, look, different styles, different standards. <laughs> I mean, listen that, you know, somebody might want a, a B property and you build a properties and, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, listen, uh, you know, I run a fund and, uh, just because uh, we don't want to buy a property doesn't mean it's not a good property for somebody else. We might want properties that we turn over in three years and they like deals they turn over in seven. Exactly. Uh, there could be tons of parameters uh, that, are, that are significant. So I really, I really like and resonate with a lot of the things you're saying because it's a, it goes back, it's the same thing as with the electrician. Uh, maybe the problem isn't the electrician. Maybe the problem is the way that we're socializing and educating people. And the mm-hmm. same thing in industry. Uh, we've become uh, too selfish and too self-absorbed. And maybe we need to be uh, thinking more about being better as an industry, not better only as a company or as a person. And the, we, we really do need to focus on the industry, the markets, the channel level, and, and all the things that we do. Because if consumers perceive that, that the industry is high quality, then everybody's benefited. And, and I think what you're saying is just right on target for all those reasons, that we really do need to focus on getting people, uh, you know, to to see all of the things that we all do in a better way. So, are you involved in any leadership in any way in your in your associations? Or are you? 
I, I have been in the past. I'm not currently with the Home Builders Association. My younger brother, who's involved in the business, um, is, is kind of taking a more active role with HBAGC. Um, another organization that I, I'm just starting to get involved with, but I think is just a phenomenal concept, it's called Revolution Workshop. Um, it was started by what could be considered a competitor of ours. Um, they are a design-built firm here in the Chicagoland area. Um, but really focusing on an underserved population and creating the skill sets and the training that goes along with carpentry skills. Um, so we're starting to kind of help out with that. And um, I, I really, I, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough, like how important the future training of this next generation and finding a skilled labor force is going to be not just for us. Um, we're figuring out ways to self-perform more uh, rather than rely on our subcontractor base because it's not just our, us as a general contractor that's having this issue. It is the plumber. It is the electrician. It is the concrete carpenter. It's the drywaller. It's the mason. And when those trades aren't able to perform at the level that we would expect them to perform, that's an erosion of our margin. That's erosion of our time, right? So what are we doing to counteract not only our own business and our own project management and our own needs, but our, our support staff, i.e. our subcontractor base. So, so um, what do you, so listen, so uh, I mean this, you know, it, it's a funny thing that uh, employees complain that they can't get a job and companies complain they can't get workers. <laughs> you know, the internet was supposed to do this extraordinary job of matching people who have uh, <laughs> common interests and, and it's still not working just right. So what are you doing to address this issue? Because because uh, you're, you're bringing up points that are, uh, that are just absolutely, they're, they're the truth uh, and you, you can't get around them, but what are you doing about it? Yeah, so we're, we're working on kind of creating strategic alliances with multiple programs in the Chicagoland area. So one being the Lake County uh, Tech Campus um, in, in Lake County Schools. Uh, so that's a feeder program for their vocational program. Um, another is District 211, which would be Friend and Palatine High Schools, uh, working with their building program and building technologies trades where their students um, are building a house um, in Palatine right now. Um, and what's great about both of these programs is that they kind of have a, a broad spectrum of, of students in regard to some students that are probably college bound, right? So they're doing this uh, to gain experience before they go study civil engineering, architecture, project management, et cetera. And then they also have students in these programs that will more than likely like enter the workforce right after high school graduation. So giving them a background um, and a skill set that can be built upon by um, our trim carpenters, for instance. We're not expecting a, a high school kid to, to graduate high school and, and be a master carpenter. You know, what we're looking yeah. for is attitude, aptitude, and the ability to pick up and the desire to, to learn this, this trade. Um, the Chicago Architecture Foundation has a, a handful of projects. I'm, I'm in, very involved with, with their organization. Um, one is called Girls Build, um, where they're, again, kind of exposing more females um, in our industry to uh, the concepts of being a project manager, an architect, uh, et cetera. And then this Revolution Workshop, which I think is another uh, great uh, opportunity um, to kind of work with uh, um, a lesser provided for population in regard to, and this could now be high school to um, 20, 30 year olds um, that just haven't found that right niche, that right mix, the right set of training perhaps um, to be able to enter the, the, the workforce as well. Um, so you know, a very what, broad net. <laughs> what, what, what I hear is that uh, it's a grassroots effort to solve a problem in your community, but the, but the same approach could be taken in every community across the country in every single industry. And, and companies have to look forward and see that uh, these problems are on the horizon. And every company kind of has a sense about what's on their horizon. Mm -hmm. And they have to be taking steps and they have to really uh, cooperate probably with municipalities, communities, and schools 
to uh, to seek these out. Let, let's uh, let's wind down. I want to ask you one more question. You know, as a female in a traditionally male-dominated business, how's that for you? What's that? What's that like? I mean, how do you deal with that? You know what? I, I have two brothers that I grew up in the construction industry, so I don't know it any other way, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, but I do under, again, kind of, I know that it's it's unique. Um, I think 11% of our industry is female. Um, ironically enough, uh, over a third of our particular company, of our of our firm, is, is, is female. Um, you know, and that's not, account. you know, just accountants and, and bookkeepers. That's, you know, our project management architect, uh, you know, women have real responsibility for the, the overall implementation of our project. So how do, um, let's, let's say, uh, let's say project managers or construction managers who are in the field, uh, mm-hmm. how do men respond to women uh, that have power that give them instruction or, you know, that have some control over them? How, how does that happen in, in your industry or what do you notice? I think even in my lifetime, I've, I've noticed a change um, in, in regard to just that dynamic. I know uh, my first job out of college, I was 22 years old as a site superintendent on a, on a project site. And uh, at first, I was met with a lot of skepticism. You know, I was not invited to the circle in the garage to have lunch with all the guys. Um, but by the end of the project, uh, one of kind of the, I would say, tougher gentlemen on the, the job site pulled me aside and he said, you know, I've got to tell you, I've never worked with a woman, like ever. I mean, I was the only female he'd ever worked with, period. And uh, he's like, you did a phenomenal job of organizing this site and I'd love to work with you again. So I think really? just like anything else in life, you know, if you prove yourself, if you do a good job, I think... Uh, even the toughest souls sometimes um, are, are willing to, you know, it, it's hard to not give you a chance if you just do a good job. Um, and I don't think that has anything to do with gender. Um, that has to do with passion and attitude and your ability to, to work hard. So, um, you know, part, part of the part of the problem is that we, we put so much attention on gender, race, religion, all these different issues. If we just would talk about people. Right. And people would probably do a really good job. So, yeah. hey, listen, it was this was really a pleasure. It was a, this was a fascinating discussion. And thank you very much for uh, for contributing and sharing and uh, being part of the business community. It sounds like you guys have a great company and you're doing a great job there. So thank you very much. Thanks, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.